Hey guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of the Christian Apologist Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us and tuning in, we ask that you please subscribe to us on whatever podcast network you are listening to us on. And if you're a regular listener, and if you frequently listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you give us a five-star rating and give us a little comment. It just helps us to get the word out, to get our podcast down, to get noticed a little bit more by other people. Today, we are going to talk about how do we know that the Christian God is actually the one true God? I mean, how do we know that Yahweh, the Christian God, is the one true God? I mean, what evidence do we have to support such a claim? And what about all those other religions? I mean, do you know that there are literally over 4,000 different religions in the world at one time? Now, although some of these religions are uh, share some similarities, there are some huge major differences that separate them, and can only one can be true. Now, why is that? Because if only one of them is true, then all the others have to be false. I mean, if not, it would be breaking the laws of logic. So, and in fact, it would be the law of excluded middle, to be exact. And that law basically states, in layman terms, that something can't be true and false at the same time. So basically, if one's true, the others are false. The majority of these religions, though, can be classified into categories, either polytheism, which is the belief in many gods, such as uh, the sun god, the water god, air god, and so forth. And then there's monotheism, which is the belief in only one god. Uh, Monotheism is also known as having a theistic god, having only one god. For example, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, etc. And then there's animism which is the belief that plants, trees, and and so on are a form of a god. And then there's pantheism, which believes that all is God, such as the universe and all that is in it. And then there's also totemism, which believes that humans and other natural beings have a divine connection, such as a person also has its animal spirit. Um, Those are mainly with uh, the Indians and uh, the tribals uh, people. But I just want to take a brief moment to dissect why we can rule out a lot of these categories and religions as having the true God. So first, what we need to do is we need to identify what is it when we say God. So when we say God, we are speaking of an all-knowing, all-powerful, personal, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, eternal, infinite, perfect being. So right out the door, we can exclude any religion categorized in pantheism, which is the belief in many gods. Now, why is that? Well, there's multiple reasons for that, because there can't be more than one all-powerful, all-knowing God. And why is that? Because if there are two gods, then that means one is lacking what the other has. If one is lacking, then it isn't perfect, meaning it can't be God. And another reason is, is God must be eternal and infinite. And having no beginning and no ending is what infinite means. So we know that the sun and the stars and the moon and so forth had a beginning. And we all know that the stars, such as our even our own sun, is running out of energy and will someday collapse on itself and be no more. Anything that has a beginning can't be eternal or infinite. And then the last reason is because, though I'm sure that there's many more, is that the sun and the moon and all the other gods in pantheism 
aren't all powerful or personal or timeless or spaceless or immaterial. They actually have been created in a space out of material and within time since they all have a beginning. They can't be all powerful if the sun is slowly dying. I mean, that's not a very powerful God. And so next on the list is going to be animism. That is the belief that plants, trees, and so on are all gods. Now, this category is a fallacy in many, many areas, such as plants, trees, and anything else is the result of either a creation from an external force, or they've been created by a necessity out of nature, also known as the contingency argument. If it's created by an external force, then that external force would have a better chance of being God than the creation itself. And if it's created by necessity out of nature, then it doesn't explain how the universe got here to begin with because the universe couldn't have been created out of necessity by nature before nature had a beginning. Also, just as with pantheism, there can't be more than one God without one or the other lacking in something. And I mean, that's just a mouthful. If you just think about all that, that's a lot to sink in. If you got that, and if you keep it up, let's move forward. Next is totemism. That is believing that animals and are in animals and people are divinely connected. If humans are in any form or fashion divine, then we have a huge, huge problem. Now, why is that? Because everyone knows that humans aren't eternal or infinite. Whether you choose to believe we are the product of macroevolution, the Gouda U via the zoo philosophy or theory, or we're created by some other means, the origins of humanity has a beginning. So neither are we powerful, all-knowing, timeless, spaceless, and or immaterial. And the same goes with any animal on the planet as well. So now we got that one out of the way. Let's move on to examine monotheism or the possibility of a theistic God, meaning only one God. Well, Let's just break this down. Having only one God is a good start, and it already sets it above all the other categories already discussed. And why is that? It's not because I'm a Christian, but it's because having only one God can already pass the laws of logic. It eliminates any other need for any other being and or necessity and can be seen as an all-knowing, all-powerful, personal, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, eternal, infinite, perfect being, that being the characteristics of a God who is needs who we are needing in order for the universe to have been created and all that's in it. So now we have eliminated all religious categories down to one, and we've gotten rid of approximately 98% of all religions. So which religions are categorized as monotheism or theism? Well, the three largest and most well-known religions are Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So we're going to actually have to explore all three religions individually and see which one leads to the most probable true God. First, let's look at Judaism. In a nutshell, Judaism is half of Christianity. Now, what do I mean by that? Judaism is the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. Judaism refers to their Bible as the Tanakh. The Tanakh is basically just the entire Old Testament for the, out, out of the Christian Bible. And Judaism and Christianity believe in the same God, Yahweh. So we're a lot alike, and Christianity is just another portion of Judaism. But where the two are completely opposite is that the New Testament and the believing in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, Jews don't believe in the New Testament as God-inspired or that the Messiah has come. 
They're still waiting on him. Now, they do believe in a Messiah, but they just don't believe he has come. Now, how come they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Well, they believe that a redeemed world would have no violence, no hunger, world peace, and all of this will be due to a worldly king sitting on his throne, making it all possible. I do believe in the Hebrew original scriptures, but not all of the Jewish Bible known as the Tanakh. Now, what do I mean? Okay, so we're going to have to travel back about a thousand years before Jesus was born, and the original Hebrew scripture was written in ancient Hebrew. As time went on, many people no longer could speak, write, or read ancient Hebrew, so most of the common world language at that time was Greek. The king of Greece at that time was King, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, honestly, it's a Potomoli, Philadelphus, maybe? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I should be close. And he wanted to know the God of Israel, but he couldn't speak or read ancient Hebrew. So what he did was he was sent to offer 72 Jewish rabbis, six from each tribe of Israel, to come to him and translate the Hebrew text into Greek so he and others could finally understand it. This group of writings came known as the Septuagint. Septuagint is all it is, is this Latin word for 70, representing the 72 rabbis who translated it. The Septuagint was actually accepted by the Sanhedrin of that time, who actually, I mean, basically it's like the Vatican, like what the Vatican is to the Catholics in, in today's society. The Septuagint had around 66 books in the known Bible. The Christian Bible uses the Septuagint text in their Bible, but not all the books. Now, here's why. Because it is the closest thing that the, the closest thing that we have to the original Hebrew scriptures. That's why we follow the Septuagint. But see, now over a thousand years later, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, somewhere around 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were they lost most of the original Hebrew scriptures. Now, a group of Jewish rabbis known as the Masoretes or Masoretes decided to retranslate the original Hebrew scripture in fear of losing the word of God entirely. But unfortunately, they did not have the original scriptures in hand. So what they did was they translated it through the scripture by what is known as oral translation. So oral translation, all that is, is it was very common in those days and it relied on memory skills, something that most people in the 21st century don't have because of all the technology we have around us. But Jewish rabbis were taught to remember all of the Old Testament Bible by memory. These texts came to be known as the Masoretic Text. Now, the Masoretic Text has the 39 books we Christians now use in our Old Testament. And is also the text in the books the Jewish use in their Bible known as the Tanakh. Now, there are over 100 100 predictions in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There are two prophecies that are completely irrefutable, if you ask me. For example, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, or you will call him Emmanuel. Another is in Psalms 22.16. For dogs... Surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. See, now Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. 
after reading just those two scriptures, just those two scriptures, how is it that the Jews just don't believe in Jesus as the prophesied Messiah? He actually fits both of those categories. Well, when the Masoretes created the Masoretic text by Old Translation, which is now the Tanakh, their verses actually slightly differ from ours. For example, in the Tanakh on Isaiah 7.14, it says, Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look, the young woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. And again in Psalms 22.16, which in the Tanakh is verse 17, says, Dogs surround me. A pack of evil ones close in on me. Like lions, they maul my hands and feet. So just notice that the Christian Bible says that the woman was a virgin in Isaiah, and in the Tanakh, it refers to her as a young woman. And also in Psalms of the Christian Bible, it says he was pierced, but once again in the Tanakh, it says that he was mauled. See, there are several assumptions onto why these translations differ between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. One reason is that rabbis who performed the oral translation into the Masoretic text didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, so they purposely changed the words so it would lead, you know, wouldn't lead to Jesus. And since at this time the Sanhedrin was no more, they literally had no authority to answer to. They had nobody that could sit there and say, you can't do this, this ain't right, this ain't true. But that's just one possibility. Another assumption is that it was just an honest mistake. But you know what? We really don't know. We can't blame anybody. It could have been a mistake or it could have not have been. We don't know. So the Christian Bible uses the actual Septuagint text with the Masoretic number of books. And the Tanakh uses the Masoretic text and the Masoretic number of books. Now, I personally tend to believe that the Septuagint is a more accurate translation from the original scripture. Now, why is that? Well, it was create, written over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. It was copied from 72 rabbis, six from each tribe of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, and was approved by the Sanhedrin at that time. Finally, it was actually copied from the original uh, ancient Hebrew scriptures, and it wasn't just memorized over a thousand years later and then orally translated. Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, formulated the odds of all the Old Testament predictions with all of them coming true in Jesus of Nazareth, and those odds are literally 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is literally a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That is some immaculate odds. So with the Old Testament pointing to Christ and him fulfilling all those predictions and all the eyewitness testimonies plus philosophical evidence, it's hard not to believe that Jesus is the Messiah spoken about in the Old Testament. Testimonies of Jesus of Nazareth are the exact same as the coming Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus being a Jew had no reason to lie about who he was and why he was here. He gained nothing by saying he was God, the Son of God. Jesus, being a Jew, would have taught, thought of himself as a blasphemer for making such claims if they weren't true. Now, here are some uh, other Old Testament verses that spoke of the coming Messiah, uh, such as Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It says, 
Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for inequity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah and the Prince shall be seven weeks and three scores and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after three scores and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall conform or confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Also, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among yourselves. From your own kinsmen, you are to pay attention to him. I will raise up for him a prophet like you from among their kinsmen. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I order him. Let's go on to Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 27. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in many judgment, or my judgment, and observe my statutes, and do them. Also in Hosea 1.1. 1, 1, um, also in Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 8.23 through uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Um, we also have Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We also have Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. We have Isaiah verse chapter 28.16. I mean, that goes on and on. We can go on to Zechariah. We can go on to Psalms. We can, there's plenty of them in Psalms. But all these point to a coming Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth fit every single one of these descriptions. The only logical conclusion, or at least at least has to be completely plausible and probable, is that Jesus is the Messiah that was told would come in the Old Testament. Guys, we're going to take a quick break real quick, give out a shout out to our sponsors. Please stay tuned as we finish up the second half of this um, why Christianity is true and why Yahweh, the God of Christianity, is the one true God. Be back in two minutes. All right, guys and gals, thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. So before we left off, we were given um, descriptions and we were given evidence for uh, Jesus and, and the Christian God for being the one true God, uh, Yahweh being the one true God, uh, Jesus Christ being the one true uh, Messiah and Christianity being the one true religion. And we left off by saying that, you know, at, at the very least, it has to be completely probable and possible that Jesus Messiah was the uh, coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And so the next religion for us to discuss is Islam. Does Islam follow the Jewish and Christian God, Yahweh? Absolutely not. Allah. Allah is the God that they follow. The 
biggest difference between Christianity and Islam is Christians believe they have a Savior, who is Jesus Christ, in which our sins are forgiven. Islam, on the other hand, doesn't believe in a Savior, but believe that through their works, they will be judged and deemed good enough to make it into heaven. I mean, if God is the standard of justice, then how do Muslims propose that God will remove their sins if nobody has paid the penalty? They believe their good works will get them a free pass into heaven. And that kind of logic doesn't even work here on earth. Now, what do I mean? Because imagine I go off and commit all kinds of crimes. I get speeding tickets, I steal, I murder, and do many other horrible crimes. Finally, I have to stand before a judge to be disciplined for my crimes. The judge is going to ask me, what do you have to say for yourself? And as I begin naming all the charities I give to and all the poor I've helped, all the homeless I've sheltered, the hunger I've fed, and all the places I have volunteered, I just name off all these things. And after I'm done telling the judge all these good things, do you think the judge is actually going to look at me and say, well, let's just let him go? I mean, would you expect the judge to take all my good deeds and just wipe away all the bad? Or do we expect a judge to be a judge and say, well, thanks for all you've done, but I'm not here to judge you on all the good things you've done. I'm here to judge you on all the bad things. Nobody gets judged on good things they do. I mean, if we hadn't done anything wrong, then there would be no need to judge us, right? So judges don't just sit around waiting to tell people good job and all the things you've done right. Judges are actually placed here to, for disciplinary actions on the things that people do wrong. And God, God himself is the standard of that justice. He's going to tell us good job for the things we've done right, but he's also going to discipline us for all the sins slash crimes that we've committed. It's only through Jesus Christ can the judgment of our sins not come back on us. If Islam doesn't believe that someone has already paid the penalty for our sins, then that means that when we die, we will have to face the wrath of God for all of our sins. But Jesus has taken that wrath from us. It isn't through works we gain Jesus' gift of salvation. That's in Ephesians 2.9. It is a gift. Also, Islam's worship Muhammad. Muhammad was a man that was born in Arabia in 570 and died around 632. He claimed to be a messenger of God who received revelation. Now, this revelation came to him at the age of 40 by Gabriel the angel, or so he claims, and he started preaching about his revelations approximately in 613. Muhammad himself, let me repeat this, Muhammad himself claims in the Quran, that is the Islam Bible, that he claims in the Quran that he never performed miracles of any kind. And see, that in itself strikes me as odd because all of God's prophets who were revealing like a new revelation from God, performed miracles to confirm that that revelation was indeed from God, except for Muhammad. So Islam does refer to Jesus, but they only refer to him as a prophet who died and never rose again. But if Jesus never rose, then death was never defeated, and Jesus was not the Son of God. So if Islam, if Islam is correct and Christianity is false, then we are all in a lot of trouble on Judgment Day. In fact, just recently, Frank Turek points out how if the Quran, the Islam Bible, is true, it's also false. Now, how's that? Because looking at the book Surah in the, in the Quran, chapter 5, verse 68, 
It says this, O people of the book, and that's speaking of the Jews and Christians, you have nothing to stand on unless you observe the Torah, the gospel, and what was has been revealed to you from your Lord. Um, for those that don't know, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, that's all that is. It's written by Moses. So what the Quran is basically saying, though, is that we all need to listen to the Old Testament, the Gospels, and the revelation given to the other authors of the New Testament. And that's exactly what Christians do. I mean, their prophet Muhammad testified to many new revelations, but they're not trustworthy since Muhammad never claimed to have performed miracles to back up his revelation. So if his revelation isn't true, then following what the Quran says in Surah, points you to Christianity. I mean, I know that's a tongue twister and that's a lot to twist around in your brain, but it's just by the process of elimination, either the Quran isn't true or it is, and it points us to Christianity. And now lastly, Christianity. What exactly is the Christianity's belief? What is our belief? Christianity is the belief in one God known as Yahweh, and in Jesus of Nazareth being God, the Son of God in human flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for all of our sins, and then rising back to life three days later. And it's only through belief in him we have salvation and eternal life in heaven. Now, we've looked at Judaism. That's the first thing we looked at. Now we just looked at Islam. And so basically Judaism is just the first half of Christianity, but the reason they don't believe in, in Jesus is because most of the uh, Orthodox Jews follow the Masoretic text, and the Christian uh, Old Testament follows the Septuagint. And then we moved on to Islam, and how even if Islam is true, it's still false because it's telling you to follow God and to follow the New Testament. So that just proves that it's false because Muhammad himself, even though he claims he was a prophet and re received revelation, he never performed miracles like every other single prophet throughout the whole Bible, except for Muhammad. All of them performed miracles except for Muhammad. They performed those miracles to back up the fact that they were bringing a revelation from God. So, since Muhammad never performed miracles, and the Quran is basically saying follow the Old Testament and the Gospels, we can rule out Islam as being the one true God. And so now what we need to do is we need to look into the evidence and the proof of Jesus being whom he says he was and the evidence that he actually died and rose again. First look at who the Bible claims Jesus is. So in John 10:30, the Father and I are one. Philippians 2, 5 through 6. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. John seventeen twenty one as the Father is in me, and I am in him, and they also may be one in us. John one eighteen no one has seen God but the Son, and only Son who is himself God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John one fourteen and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, the Bible makes it very, very clear in many places that Jesus is God, the Son of God. Now, how do we know that is true, though? Can we just go off of what the Bible says and just be like, oh, that's absolutely true. Well, honestly, a lot of people do do that and they're satisfied with that and that's great. But a lot of people, it takes a little bit more convincing. So the first thing we would have to do is look at the eyewitness testimony. 
Now let's start with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Couldn't the Gospel writers have been lying? Yes, but that wouldn't be logical. Now why is that? Because all the Gospel writers were already Jews except Luke. Luke was actually a doctor. Jews already had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible like we've already spoken about, and believed they were already saved without Jesus. So why would they give eyewitness details about the life and death of Jesus that they already believed they were saved? What Jesus claimed was considered blasphemy according to the Jews. So why would they lie? Matthew, Mark, and John were going against literally everything they had been believed and been brought up from since birth. But why would they do this? It was because they believed in Jesus being God, the Son of God, so much that they were and did die for their belief in Jesus. Now, you might say that people lie all the time, or people write books and give interviews in which they know they are lying. I mean, all you got to do is just turn on any news channel and you'll catch lies left and right. I mean, that's just how it is nowadays. They just exaggerate or they just completely lie. And that's true. But people usually know when they're lying, and nobody who's lying is willing to die for a lie in which they know they're lying about. I think I said that right. Did I say that right? That people usually know when they're lying, and nobody who's lying is willing to die for a lie in which they know they're lying about. Also, all four Gospels were written at different times. The book of Mark was written around somewhere A.D. 66 to 70. Uh, Matthew and Luke were somewhere between A.D. 85 and 90. And John was actually uh, somewhere between A.D. 90 and 110. So it's not as if these men were just all sitting around a campfire and discussing what to say and what not to say. It's not like they were like, hey, Mark, um, how about we say that Jesus called Peter Satan? What do you think about that? I mean, do you see how ridiculous that actually sounds? That they would sit around and, and, and paint these pictures as if they were just, you know, trying to come up with the same story. You know, but then people sit there and say, okay, but all the books were written years after when they claimed the actual events of Jesus occurred. Well, that's true, but so were almost all history books, and we still believe them to be true. In fact, most of the books written about Jesus in the New Testament were written at earlier times after the claims than most of our history books were. So why should the account of the New Testament books be considered less than that of any other history book? Um, all four books claim that the life of Jesus was anything but less than extraordinary. They all speak of his miracles, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And did you know that after the resurrection of Jesus, over 500 people witnessed seeing him? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 8. But in the United States Supreme Court, in our court system, it only takes two eyewitnesses to convict someone to prison. Only two. And yet we have five, we have a, witnesses of 500 people claiming to have seen Jesus after he had died. I mean, why is it that we're completely okay with only two witnesses to convict someone to prison, yet we struggle to believe in the eyewitness account of over 500 people? I mean, why? I mean, many see, many see the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection as unreliable due to how long ago it happened, and they never personally saw Jesus and all he had done. And if that's the logic, seriously, if that's the logic we're going to use, we're going to be using, then I guess we can't say for absolute certainty that Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, or John Adams ever lived. I mean, nobody today saw them, met them, or, or knew of these men. All we have to go on are our history books and their legacies, and we accept all of them as true and accurate, except the Gospels of Jesus Christ. 
Paul of Tarsus, who was previously known as Saul, wrote many, many accounts of Jesus. Paul was actually a Jew, just like the three the three other Gospels. Paul was actually one of the most feared Jewish men by Christian communities. Now, why is that? He was a Roman soldier who was in charge of killing. Did you hear me? Paul used to be known as Saul, was a Roman soldier who was in charge of killing all those that were followers of Jesus. He was a murderer of Christians. Paul actually thought what he was doing by killing all the Christians was a good thing, was doing good work for God. Paul himself had no reason to make up a story about his conversion. In his eyes, he was already saved. In fact, he was probably sitting right-handed God in his own mind because he was going around killing all the Christians and he thought he was doing that for God. If anything, he probably figured like, like he was just king of the hill, you know? He didn't think he needed Jesus to be saved. But then Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus and Paul believed him after Jesus confirmed who he was. And after this conversion, Paul actually went on to become one of the most prolific authors of the New Testament. He is attributed to writing somewhere between 13 to 14 books out of the 27 books of the New Testament. So why would Paul, a Jewish soldier and hater of Jesus Christ, make claims against his own beliefs and ultimately end up dying because of his assurance in Jesus as the Lord of Lords? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense that he and the others would have recanted their claims before being called, uh, before being killed for their beliefs in Jesus that they were false? I mean, what were they having to gain? They gained nothing. They didn't gain anything. In fact, when they, when they wrote the gospels and when Paul wrote his books, they never gained success, money, popularity, or fame. They actually got the exact opposite. They were repeatedly thrown into prison, beaten, and eventually murdered for their beliefs in Jesus. So for someone to have gone through all that after already believing they were saved without Jesus, to me, it could only mean one thing, and that is that it was true, that what he witnessed and what he had seen and what he believed was the absolute truth. Now, people say, doesn't the Old Testament and the New Testament have contradictions? Don't contradictions just prove that it's false and it's a fallacy? No, it doesn't. And here's why. Because what many people see as contradiction, they are actually known errors. So yes, I am claiming that the Bible has errors. We can see the few errors in the Bible by comparing the many manuscripts to one another. And virtually though, in virtually almost all cases of known errors, Scribes were able to recognize these errors and correct them. But, you know, a lot of people, when I tell people that the Bible does have errors, they say, well, doesn't errors just prove that it can't be true? No, because the Bible having errors doesn't prevent us from knowing what the main topic being expressed was. For example, in Manuscript 1, John 1030, I and the Father are one. But let's just take out the E and put an astro mark. And then in manuscript two, it says, I and the Father are one. But instead of taking out the E this time, let's take out the H and let's put a hashtag. And manuscript three, I and the Father are one. But, you know, this time let's take out the T and let's put a star there instead. Now, by looking at these three manuscripts, are we able to conclude what the Bible is saying? Yes, of course. We're saying that, you know, God, he was talking to Jesus, Jesus and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. 
So the total number of actual Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, they literally stacked up to over a mile high. I mean, that's huge considering that most Greek classical literature manuscripts barely made it to four feet high. And we're talking about over a mile high. That's over 5,200 feet high. So why didn't God just preserve the original, right? you think that would make sense. But let us just assume that God did preserve the original manuscript. What could we do with the original manuscript? Think about it. We could alter it. We could change it. We could destroy it altogether. And nobody would ever know the difference. So what God did do was he had over 400 copies of the original made and passed out to different people. And he did this because if someone had would have changed any one of their copies, we would know who changed their copy and call them out on it. Simply put, by not preserving the original manuscripts, he actually preserved the original manuscript. It's kind of amazing how smart God is, isn't it? But what if the errors aren't just as subtle as I mentioned? You know, what if they're not? What about the gospel's account of the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, when Jesus' resurrection, some say one angel was present at the tomb, another two angels, and others defer on who showed up to the tomb first. So which gospel account is correct? Aren't the other ones wrong? No, I believe they are actually all correct. Now, how is that? Because every book that was written was written from that person's own personal experience and viewpoints. To me, this actually helps validate the gospel. See, because like I was saying earlier, if they were all sitting around writing the same thing, every story would have looked exactly the same. But let's say for four people see a crime and the police show up to take down their eyewitness report separately. Most likely, you are going to hear four different stories of how that crime had happened. One witness saw only one male suspect, another witness saw two male suspects, another witness noticed one male and one female, and the fourth witness only saw one female. Are any of these people lying? No, none of them are lying. They all saw things from different perspectives, but through their testimony, we are able to combine them and get an accurate account of how the crime happened. It is because of these types of errors is what validates the accounts of their stories and of Jesus of Nazareth. It wouldn't make sense that they all match, matched up, that they all added up, that they were all the exact same, because if they were, then we would know that they were lying. Now, let us use a true, a more famous example, one of the most tragic events to ever occur in the U.S., that is the 9-11 attacks in New York. If you go back and watch some of this, some of the eyewitness accounts say that an explosion occurred before either of the planes hit. Other witnesses say it was a commercial plane, while others say it didn't look like a commercial plane. Now, does having several different contradicting eyewitness testimonies mean that we can't put together what happened during 9-11? Of course not. We know the main point of the event. The same applies with the stories of Jesus, including his resurrection. Though the testimonies have slight variations, the main objective was to express that Jesus is God, the Son of God. He died on the cross, and he rose again in three days. Uh, in fact, American scholar and great skeptic uh, Bart Ehrman wrote a book in 2005 titled Misquoting Jesus. His stance was that the New Testament documents could not be historically proven to be accurate, so therefore they are not accurate and unreliable. But within a year or two, a paper book version of the exact same book comes out. And on page 252, he says, Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript traditions of the New Testament. So now he is openly admitting that the New Testament variants are not even enough to affect Christianity. The testimonies from the writers of the New Testament were also extremely, extremely embarrassing. And how is that? 
Well, in many places where the original 12 disciples were spoke about was an embarrassing manner. For example, like in John 12, 16, or Mark 9, 32, or in Luke 18, 34, all show how dingy they were. They were extremely dingy. Jesus says something to them or in front of them, and they have to ask Jesus what he meant by what they said when they were all alone. They didn't understand it. And in Luke 26, 33, Peter tries acting like a big shot with his chest all puffed out and in front of his other disciples and tells Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. But we all know what happens. He cowards down and denies Jesus when asked by women if he knew Jesus. He cowered down. He did not want to admit that he knew Jesus after he saw him getting beat. And in Mark eight thirty three, Jesus called Peter saint in front of everyone. I mean, Peter is literally... He's the rock of Christianity. That's what Jesus calls him and somewhat of a leader to the other 11 disciples. And he was literally called Satan in front of all his friends. I mean, think about this. Peter thinking that he was high and mighty and of great importance. And then Jesus looks at him and refers to him as God's greatest enemy. I mean, that had to be extremely, extremely embarrassing. There's even a testimony, an embarrassing testimony about Jesus. I mean, Jesus had to be placed in a borrowed tomb. I mean, think about that. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, and they are having to borrow a tomb to place his body in. And Luke, it says this in Luke uh, 23, 50 through 56. His disciples, his disciples didn't even have bothered to try and give him a proper burial. That's embarrassing, but yet they want us to go on to believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. But yet they didn't, they didn't even think to give him a proper burial. I mean, John in 7, 5 tells us that even Jesus' own brother didn't believe that he was the Messiah. I mean, this was Jesus' own flesh and blood. These people grew up with him and knew him better than anybody else, and they did not believe in him as Jesus Christ, as Jesus as uh, the Messiah. I mean, in the same book of John in verse 20, they tell us how crowds thought Jesus was demon-possessed. I mean, the disciples claimed Jesus is the Messiah, in which they had abandoned their religion for, and now they're claiming that others who saw him thought that he was demon-possessed. But now they're expecting us to believe that he truly was the Son of God? I mean, seriously? That doesn't even make sense. Why wouldn't they only tell us the good things about Jesus? Why didn't they leave all those bad things out? I mean, aren't they trying to tell us that, I mean, convince us that he was uh, his divinity, that, I mean, it was real, and he was the Son of God, and he was God, and he was here to forgive us of our sins, and he performed all these miracles? Why would they continue to tell us about all these bad things and all these embarrassing things? But after Jesus' resurrection, the women told the disciples his body was missing, and they had seen him. That was in Luke 24, 11. The disciples did not believe them, and they actually thought it was nonsense. Why wouldn't they write the story showing their faith in Jesus' resurrection and say they were the ones that ran to the tomb? Why wouldn't they have shown that? At the crucifixion, all the disciples abandoned Jesus except for the women. Why didn't they say that while the men stayed by Jesus, the women ran away in fear? But instead, the Gospels tell us that the women were the ones with him every step of the way. All of these stories are extremely embarrassing, detailed testimonies, and they would not have been saying it if it wasn't true. If anything, it would seem to have been made them less credible rather than gain it. I mean, what man is going to write a story based on truth and admit that they were scaredy pants and ran away when trouble came? What man would say that while we were scared and tucked our tails and ran, the women stood up and were brave? It doesn't make any sense unless it just was true. 
I mean, did you know to this very day there's a story that is still circulated throughout Judaism? And that is the story that Jesus' body was stolen from the tomb to make people think that he had risen from the dead? I mean, is this actually possible, though? Yes, it would be possible, but it's not logical, and here's why. Because there is reasonable evidence pointing to this rumor not being true. For one, Jesus' body has never been discovered. Two, the testimony of the Roman soldiers who were meant to watch over the body to prevent theft would have most likely been killed for allowing that to happen. Also, how can the Roman soldiers say, this is what happened while we were sleeping? You were asleep. You don't know what happened. That doesn't even make sense. The eyewitness account of the soldiers would have never been able to sustain the test of time. Now, is it possible to prove that Christianity is false? Absolutely it is. Now, how is that? By finding the body of Jesus of Nazareth. If they find the body of Jesus, it would completely and utterly destroy Christianity and prove it to be false. Literally, Christians around the world would have to come to the realization that they've been worshiping the wrong God. But this is all I have to say to end this podcast. After considering for 2,000 years, they haven't found the body of Jesus of Nazareth, and I personally know they never will. And the reason I know this is because it is true and Jesus has risen.